Our text this morning, if y'all want to turn there, is Colossians chapter 4, and we are in the, at the very end of the letter, and our text this morning is going to be verses 10 through 14 of Colossians chapter 4, and if, if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some on the floor under some of the seats, the blue ones that you are welcome to use. And the scripture will also be provided up on the screen for your reference. So as I said, as you're turning there, we're in the, the final section, which a month ago we, we, we began this final section which, of Paul's letter, which runs from chapter 4, verse 7, all the way through verse 18, the close of this chapter. And last time our text was verses 7 through 9, so that's what we covered. And that was where Paul gave his commendation of the men he was sending to Colossae, Tychicus and Onesimus. Tychicus was carrying this very letter to the church to whom it was addressed, and he was accompanied by Onesimus, who was returning with him to Colossae. And Paul was giving his commendation of them. We talked about that last time and looked at these two men who are somewhat obscure in Scripture and not very familiar to us. And once again this morning, we're going to do something similar because we're in a section of greetings, and we have a number of, of men that are listed here, and we want to take a closer look at them so that we might be more acquainted with them and actually see uh, some principles that we can draw from this section that usually we kind of maybe read quickly over to see, okay, it's the closing of a letter, all right, moving along, and we usually look for maybe passages that give us exhortations. Well, Paul's done with all his instruction, all of his exhortations for the, the body of Christ at Colossae. And so now, we want to see what we can consider from these final greetings. So let's read verses 10 through 14. And next Sunday, actually, we will, we will finish the letter, um, verses 15 through 18. We'll finish that next Sunday. So let's read, starting in verse 10. Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So, as was the case last time, this passage, we just read it, very straightforward. It's very straightforward, it's very clear in, in what Paul is doing here, giving these final greetings. He's extending these personal greetings to the Colossian church, from the rest of the brothers who were working with him in Rome to advance the gospel. So, like I said, like we did last time, we're going to take a closer look at these men, at these individuals mentioned by Paul so that we can come to know them better. That is, again, to the extent that we can from Scripture, what Scripture says about them. And we're going to do this so that we can come to appreciate how the Lord was working through them as well to advance the gospel and build his church. Again, he wasn't only working through the apostles. He was working through all of his people, 
all of the members of the body of Christ, all of his elect, he was working in them and through them to further his purposes in the world. And then after we take a look at these men, at this team that was with Paul, we're going to briefly consider some principles from this passage that will help us as a part of this local church, help us understand how we can work towards effectively partnering together in gospel ministry, which is what we're called to do, every one of us. We are part of this local church. This local church is about the business of doing the work of ministry, the ministry of the gospel. And every one of us has a role to play. You know, fellowship, we talk about this is a fellowship. And usually we think it's, you know, we have a maybe, we tend to think of a social club kind of aspect that the world usually uses the term fellowship of. But fellowship really, biblically speaking, means partnership, joint partnership. We are partners together in the mission of Christ that he's given to us as his church. So we want to take the example of Paul's team and see how we can apply it to our own church and our own ministry. So in this passage, Paul names six brothers in Christ who, along with Timothy, were assisting him in his ministry of the gospel in Rome. The first one mentioned is a man named Aristarchus. Here's what we can learn from Scripture about him. He was a Jew from the city of Thessalonica in the Roman province of Macedonia. It is likely that he was one of the people who came to Christ when Paul brought the gospel to that region during his second missionary journey. And according to what we read in Acts 17, there was intense opposition from the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica when when Paul brought the gospel there. And these Jews who opposed Paul and the gospel he was proclaiming in Thessalonica, they formed a mob and threw the city into an uproar. And some of those who had believed the gospel were attacked by this mob and dragged before the local authorities. And as we read in Paul's first letter to the church that formed there in Thessalonica, the gospel was declared to them, he says, in the midst of much conflict. However, the Thessalonian Christians were unfazed by the threatening opposition, as we see from what Paul said of them in his first letter to them. He wrote, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word and much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And in Paul's second letter to them, he wrote the following, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This was Aristarchus' home church. However, the first time we read of him is actually not until Acts 19. Acts 19 is where his name first appears. And this was when he was with Paul in Ephesus, Scripture says, which would have been several years after Paul first visited Thessalonica. So we see the circumstances in which the gospel came to Thessalonica. Aristarchus came from that city. And by the time we get to Acts 19, he is with Paul, ministering with Paul in Ephesus. And in Acts 19, we read... Here's what we read, an account 
of his time in Ephesus with Paul. We read that a pagan silversmith named Demetrius, who was in the business of making shrines to the goddess Artemis, whose massive temple was located right there in Ephesus, riled up his fellow tradesmen against Paul for leading people away from paganism and thus from their lucrative business. They formed an angry mob and whipped the city into a frenzy, and Aristarchus, guess what, gets caught in the middle of that frenzy. Here's part of the account in Acts 19. Scripture says, when, when they, that is the, the tradesmen, the pagan tradesmen, led by Demetrius the silversmith, when they heard this from Demetrius, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's patriotism right there for you, pagan patriotism. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. This is a near riot. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Total chaos. And that passage, that account goes on, and it says that after two hours of shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours just shouting that, the city's mayor quieted the crowd and convinced them to settle down and disperse. And it was right after this event that Paul decided to leave Ephesus and, and head over to the churches in Macedonia and Greece to finish gathering a collection among the churches for the Christians who were in poverty in Jerusalem. We talked about that last time. Aristarchus went with him. Can you blame him? Just got dragged by an angry mob, fearing for his life. So he goes with Paul to Macedonia, leaves with Paul from Ephesus. Now, Aristarchus, like Tychicus, whom we learned about last time, he ends up being chosen by his home church, so his home church in Thessalonica. He ends up being chosen by his home church, along with a brother named Secundus, to deliver their church's portion of the financial aid package that was being sent to Jerusalem. He was chosen to be, in other words, an official representative of his home church and entrusted to transport their offerings, their monetary collection, their gift. He was part of the team of church representatives that, as we learned about last time, stayed the course even though they had learned of an assassination plot against Paul by the Jews, which put them all in danger. So again, just like Tychicus, Aristarchus is one of this, the members of this team. And even though the, the journey was going to be perilous, and now that there was a hit on Paul's life, he continued on with him. He was a trustworthy man. He was a faithful man. And this team eventually made it all the way to Jerusalem and successfully delivered this collection from their churches to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, as we recounted last time, it was shortly after this that Paul was attacked by the Jews in the temple in Jerusalem and taken into Gentile custody, which he, in which he remained for two whole years. Two whole years. And after that, he was shipped off to Rome to have his case, his legal case, heard before the emperor. And during that two-year period, we learned that the Roman governor allowed Paul's friends to attend to his needs, to meet his needs. So he wasn't completely isolated. He allowed his friends to attend to his needs. 
And Aristarchus was likely one of these friends who stayed with him. And it's possible that he went back at some point to his home church in Thessalonica to give them a report of how everything went in delivering the collection, but we can't say for sure. But what we do know is that when Paul was shipped off to Rome, Aristarchus was right there with him, and he accompanied him, accompanied him on the voyage. Here's what we read in Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort, cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And guess what? We read that this ended up being a months-long voyage because they faced violent weather. They ended up being lost at sea. They ended up having their ship wrecked. Quite a ride. By God's grace, no one perished on that ship, and they all made it safely to Rome. And I just want to get a visual right here. I forgot my laser pointer, but it's up there. So you see the, uh, the, the tracing all the way down at the bottom right, where it's Caesarea, essentially that's where Paul was held in custody, and then the voyage began from there. Aristarchus was with them, and you see the journey traveling along there, and then they get to the island of Crete, and it was after they had departed from there, they were trying to go up the coast of that island, and they got blown off course by violent winds and storm, and end up being, there's that note, lost in storm at sea. And it was two whole weeks, it says, that they, were, they couldn't see the sun, stormy weather. They're trying to get their bearings, fearing of running aground on the, the shallows on the, the coast to the south. And then eventually they ended up shipwrecking right off on the coast of this island, this small island down there, Malta. And then they ended up having to stay there for three whole months to, to stay out the winter because you really can't travel during the winter at, at sea, as they learned. And eventually made it all the way up there safely to Rome. But guess what? That whole journey, Aristarchus is right along with Paul. Now, Paul had to go. He was in custody. Aristarchus volunteered to go, to be his companion, to go with him. So there you go. You get a visual, quite a long journey, months-long voyage. Aristarchus then stuck by Paul's side and continued to be a help to Paul any stayed with Paul all the way to Rome, and he continued to, to be a help to Paul in Rome while Paul was in custody there. As we see in our text in Colossians, Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now, it's possible, it's possible that at the writing of at the time that Paul wrote the letter, that Aristarchus was also detained by the authorities. He says, my fellow prisoner. He doesn't say in a figurative sense, there's nothing to indicate he could, you know, that he's talking figuratively. He could actually mean that. He actually was a fellow prisoner at that point. So it's possible that he had been detained by authorities, or he may have actually volunteered to stay confined with Paul, so effectively be a prisoner, to stay confined with Paul in order to more readily assist him. Either way, we can certainly say that Aristarchus was what? He was faithful, and he was willing to stay the course and endure any hardship for the cause of Christ. The next man that we read about that Paul sends greetings from is Mark. 
Mark, if you see that in your text right there. And the fact that Paul adds that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. You see, he says Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. The fact that he says that seems to indicate that the Colossians knew who Barnabas was. Although they had not met Paul face to face, which we talked about again at the beginning of this letter, Paul is writing them, they've never met Paul face to face. Paul knows a few of those from Colossae because they had come to Christ under his ministry when he was in Ephesus, and they went back and planted the church, brought the gospel there. But he never really met the Colossians. So they hadn't met Paul face to face, but apparently they had met Barnabas. It seems to be that, because he's referring to Barnabas. Barnabas was a wealthy Jew from Cyprus, who we see in Scripture faithfully serving the church in its early days in Jerusalem. He's, one of, he's actually the man who introduced Paul to Peter and James, the Lord's brother, and vouched for him when Paul first visited Jerusalem. Again, Paul used to be persecuting the church. The Lord graciously saved him. And on his first visit to Jerusalem, Barnabas is the man who actually introduced Paul to Peter and James and vouched for him, saying he's seen the Lord, shared his testimony. Barnabas was also the one who later got Paul to join him in pastoring the first Gentile church, which was in Antioch. Now, Barnabas' cousin, Mark, we read about here, whose Jewish name is John, so Mark's a a Greek name that he's taken, or a Greco-Roman name, a Hellenistic Roman name. Mark ended up leaving his home in Jerusalem and joining Barnabas and Paul in Antioch to assist him in their ministry, where they're ministering, pastoring the church there. Mark joined them also on their first missionary journey, and we read about that in Acts 13. Here's what it says. Now there were in the church at Antioch, Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, later became known as Paul. And while they were worshiping the Lord, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, who is Mark, to assist them. And it says that before they left Cyprus, this island, Cyprus, Rome's governing official there came to believe the gospel. So they proclaimed the gospel. The, the Rome's governing official on that island came to believe the gospel. And then after this, Paul, Barnabas, and Mark, they journeyed on. They were leaving the island to go to the mainland. And we pick it up in, in verse 13 of Acts 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. So now they're off the island. They're back in the mainland. And John, who's Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. So there's uh, another map just so you can get a visual on these places and stuff. But if you see in the middle from Antioch going down to this island, that's where they first landed and where they started proclaiming the gospel. This is where this Roman official 
came to faith in Christ. And then from Paphos, on that other side of the island, they go, back, they go up to the mainland there. And then from Perga, up there, you see this different colored line there. That's, and it cuts off at the bottom of the screen, but that's Mark bailing on them, leaving there. And actually, the thing is, because Barnabas was from, from Cyprus, he's a relative of Mark, it's likely that Mark also was a native of Cyprus at some point. Jerusalem was, his home, was where his home was. He was with them in Antioch, but he probably was originally from Cyprus. So that was familiar territory. But what happens? You venture into unknown territory. And then we don't know why. We don't know the reason Mark bailed. It's possible that he got intimidated, was trepid, intimidated by un, you know, unknown territory. Maybe he got cold feet. Who knows? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. It's just that statement, Mark left, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. And here's the thing, that's unfortunate because the continuing of this missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, this first missionary journey, Mark ended up missing out on witnessing God's great work in the province of Galatia, these these cities up here, this whole region. God did incredible work through Paul and Barnabas, and Mark didn't get to see any of that because he bailed. The gospel was received in this region by many, and churches were established there. So again, no reasons given as to why Mark bailed on him. Whatever his reason was, though, it wasn't good, because three years later, three years after this, when Paul and Barnabas were setting out for their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along, his cousin Mark. But Paul refused This is recorded in Acts 15. We read this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. He's talking about the churches in Galatia. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now this separation took place about 10 years prior to Paul's writing of this letter to the church at Colossae. It had been 10 years from this event or this time, the time that Paul was actually writing this letter. And at some point during that long period, Mark had obviously redeemed himself in Paul's eyes. Because at the time of writing this letter, Mark was serving alongside Paul in Rome. And as we see in verse 11, Paul calls him what? A fellow worker for the kingdom of God. By the way, this is the same Mark who also was very helpful at some point or began to be very helpful to the Apostle Peter and who, by the way, wrote down Peter's memoirs to give us one of the four Gospels that we have in the Bible, the Gospel that bears his name, the Gospel of Mark. So he ends up writing one of the four Gospels. Whether he did this before the time Paul wrote Colossians or after, we don't know for sure, but Mark is certainly an example for us of one who came back from failure and proved himself faithful in service to the Lord. I would say that's encouraging. 
you know, with God, God's grace is abundant, there are certainly second chances and third chances, right? We are weak. We do fail at times. And yet we can be restored and to, to serve the Lord and be restored in serving him and being of use to him. So what are the instructions Paul says in verse 10? What are these instructions concerning Mark that Paul was referring to? You see that? Concerning him, you've received instructions. We don't know. We have no idea. Some kind of instructions. It appears that they, they came from someone else. Because again, Paul's not saying, I've given you instructions. He doesn't say anything. You've just received instructions. And remember, Paul's not met the Colossians. So who do these come from? Maybe from Barnabas, since it seems that they know Barnabas, and Paul made that connection with him. The bottom line is that what? By saying this, what are we seeing here? If he comes to you, receive him or welcome him. The bottom line is that Paul was what? Vouching for him now. As a faithful servant in the Lord's work and commending him to the Colossians, should he visit them. And then there's this third man from whom Paul sent greetings, whose name is Jesus, who also went by the name Justice. Jesus, the Greek form of the name Joshua, that was the Hebrew, this, this Jewish Christian's Jewish name. And Justice was his Hellenistic Roman name. So just like John went by Mark, Jesus went by Justice. That was his Hellenistic Roman name. And guess what? We have no information about this Jewish brother in Christ other than what Paul writes here. He was part of the team that was aiding Paul in gospel work while he was under military custody in Rome. And Paul says that justice, along with, and I'll say justice so it doesn't get confusing instead of saying Jesus, that justice was ministering along with Aristarchus and Mark. And the three of them were the, as Paul says in verse 11, the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. What does he mean by that? Well, in other words, they were the only Jews on his ministry team. More specifically, they were the Christians on his team who, like him, were born in a Jewish household and had been circumcised since they were eight days old. Traditional Jewish household. Timothy, if you recall, who's mentioned at the beginning of this letter, you might think, what about him? Well, Timothy who is mentioned when Paul gives the greeting at the beginning of the letter, he did not fall into this category because his mother was Jewish, but his father was not. His father was a Greek, Scripture says. So that means he did not grow up in a Jewish household. And he also had not been circumcised since he was an infant. So he didn't have that traditional Jewish upbringing raised by devout Jewish parents. And Paul is saying, but these three men, like me, came out from that and had come to embrace the Messiah. There are now, as circumcised Jews, believers in Jesus Christ. Paul says of these three men who had grown up in devout Jewish homes and were now helping him in his ministry of the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles, that they were a comfort to him. He was encouraged by them. Why? Well, we have to remember that while many Jews had come to Christ. So again, think about the beginning of the church, right? It started with Jews believing the gospel as it was proclaimed by the apostles. You have 3,000 in one day coming to faith in Christ. 
while many Jews had come to Christ and were coming to Christ, the vast majority did not. The vast majority did not, and it broke Paul's heart to see most of his fellow Israelites continue to reject their Messiah. So how refreshing would it be for Paul, for him to witness Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice serving the Lord and assisting him in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. More than that, though, he wasn't just comforted by the fact that these are Jews who have embraced the Messiah. He's even more than that comforted by the fact that he's seeing them not only understand that the grace of God was being poured out on the Gentiles as well, which Jews did not like. Again, that was part of Paul's message that they revolted against and rebelled against and and decided they want nothing to do with Paul as soon as he mentions that God's going to extend his grace to Gentiles. Well, Paul sees Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, they get it. They get that God is saving Gentiles as well. But what are they doing? They're more than that. They are sacrificially laboring alongside Gentile Christians, shoulder to shoulder, and they are assisting in the ministry of the gospel specifically to the Gentiles, which was Paul's primary calling. So that was why he would have said, they've been a comfort to me to see my fellow Israelites not only believe on the Messiah, but also being a part of his work in bringing the gospel and the salvation of God, not just to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles. And then the next three men from whom Paul sends greetings are Gentile Christians, the Gentile Christians who are serving with him in Rome, aside from the two we talked about last time, Tychicus and Nesimus, and Paul had commended them already, and they were actually leaving with the letter to visit Colossae, but those who remained with him were these three Gentile Christians. They were the ones whom Paul was sending, uh, I'm sorry, the, the ones who were with him were these three Gentile Christians remaining with him in Rome as Onesimus and Tychicus departed. And what, who are they? Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Epaphras, we had talked about him when we did the introduction to this letter. You know how long ago that was? Two years. Two years ago. Goodness. But that's what happens when you do this once a month. Short letter, two years. But in the introduction, we talked about Epaphras because we had to understand how did, when was the church at Colossae planted? I mean, if Paul had never been there. And Epaphras is actually the one who was, a, who was from that town. He was a native of, Coloss- of Colossae, and he was likely one of the pastors of the church there. We learned back at the beginning of Paul's letter that, that Epaphras was actually the one whom the Lord used to bring the gospel to Colossae and established a church there. And it appears that he had also done this in the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis, which Paul mentions right here, that he is working hard for them. So based on what Paul says there, Epaphras had a pastoral role, not just for Colossae, but also maybe for those churches in, in the nearby cities. And the church at Colossae was anywhere from three to five years old when Epaphras made this 1,300-mile journey from Colossae to Rome in order to visit Paul. In addition to informing Paul of all that the Lord had been doing in Colossae and in the neighboring cities, Epaphras was, he was seeking the apostles' assistance in dealing with the strain of false teaching that was working its influence in 
the region. And it was generating confusion among the members of his congregation. So Epaphras, as one who not only brought the gospel to Colossae in that region, who was likely pastoring the church there, has concerns about this false teaching, is trying to deal with it, knows that he can meet with Paul in Rome, makes the 1,300-mile journey to meet with him to get counsel, guidance on how to deal with the problem, but also to tell him what the Lord's doing there. So that's how Epaphras ends up in Rome. And as we can see in the final greetings, Epaphras ended up staying there for a time with Paul, not returning right away to Colossae. And it's likely that he's staying a little longer to return the favor of Paul giving him assistance. Now he wants to assist Paul and help him since Paul is confined under house arrest. However, that didn't mean that he was breaking from his ministry to the church at Colossae. Right? He wasn't taking a sabbatical from pastoring. Because what does Paul say? Paul says he continued to minister to the church at Colossae from afar through prayer. What does Paul say? Paul said he was always struggling on behalf of the Colossians in his prayers in order that they might, what? What was his desire for them? That they might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras, like Paul, he longed to see God's people mature in Christ and be steadfast in the faith. That's, his, that's the Lord's will for you, by the way, for us as a church, that we would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul then sends greetings from Luke, who he calls the beloved physician. So Luke was a doctor. Hey, you know, we have a beloved physician, Christiane. You know, we have, we actually have, if we think of our vocations, right, in our professions, you can see how the Lord uses us in these, these vocations to, to, uh, to use our skills and our talents and abilities to render a, a useful service to the body of Christ, does he not? But hey, Luke was a doctor. He was a beloved physician. And we can imagine how much of a blessing it was to Paul to have him on his team, to have Luke on his team, right? I mean, since Paul had to endure persecution pretty much everywhere he went, which came in the form of countless beatings, as he put it in 2 Corinthians 11.23. Countless beatings, whipped, beaten with rods, even stoned and miraculously survived that. It was intended to be an execution by a mob. So having a doctor on was quite handy for him. But more than that, though, Luke is someone who proved to be a beloved and loyal friend to Paul. He first joined Paul in ministry right before Paul entered Macedonia on his second missionary journey. And then Luke was with Paul once again on his third missionary journey, and he was one of the members of this team taking that collection that we talked about, that financial aid package from the churches to be delivered to the church in Jerusalem for the ministry to the poor there. So he had traveled with them on that long and arduous journey. And he was also with Paul, and guess what we already talked about is Aristarchus. He was with Paul and Aristarchus on that long and perilous voyage in the Mediterranean Sea from Caesarea to Rome. So Luke also had the privilege, the luxury of being lost at sea and being out there for months on end and being shipwrecked. But he was there to be by Paul's side, to provide aid and assistance to him because he knew the importance of his work as an apostle of Christ. 
So while Paul took the opportunity while he was under house arrest to compose his letter to Philemon as well as his letters to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi, this is when he wrote all these letters. You know what? Luke was also doing some writing of his own. Because what we learn is that it was at this time that he wrote the gospel that bears his name and also the book of Acts. So while Paul's writing his letter, letters, Luke is busy writing the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Together, which if you, if you look at the volume of these, these writings, these books, they make up about a quarter of our New Testament. So Luke is an excellent example of how we can put, again, our vocation, not only our vocation, but also our education to use for the glory of Christ. And then finally, the last man mentioned is Demas. Demas. And all we know about Demas is that he was serving with Paul in Rome when Paul was writing this letter. He was serving with him there. He's mentioned in this letter. He's mentioned at the end of Philemon. We don't know when he joined Paul, but he's mentioned one other time. We do know that several years later, when Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, that Demas ends up abandoning Paul because, as Paul said, he was more concerned about life in the present world than about Christ's eternal purposes. That's the only other mention or the only reference to Demas. That's what Paul says of him. He's left because he loved this present world. He's abandoned me. He's forsaken me. So it's a bitter thought as we go through the greetings. It's a bitter thought for us to end on this final failure, this, this abandonment of Demas after we got acquainted with Paul's team to end on this note. But I would say it's important because it serves as a reminder for us that time will tell who is truly devoted to Christ in his church and who is not. Time will tell. So it's easy to seem on fire for Christ and, and completely devoted and sold out for the cause of Christ to be ready to serve and be used by him. But time will tell if that is superficial and not genuinely from the heart. Time will tell if you're doing that as someone who is truly born again and truly devoted to the Lord, or if it's just as someone who is claiming to be a Christian and helping along in this community that you like to be a part of. Um, time will tell where the true devotion is or who is truly devoted to Christ. Superficial devotion to Christ will not last, but true devotion to Christ, on the other hand, endures to the end, even though there may be temporary failures along the way, as we saw in Mark's case, right? Mark failed. Mark bailed on them, right? But he was restored. He proved, what, what did he end up doing? He was restored, and more than that, he excelled in service to the Lord, end up writing a gospel. How many of you have done that? Not you do that. But, but Demas, it was how he ended, and his ending was not a, a lapse in, in faithfulness. It was a seems by what Paul says, a, an abandonment. Going back to the world, I'm done with this. But true devotion of Christ will endure to the end, and even though there are failures along the way, the, the grace of Christ is sufficient for us. So what must we do, just quickly, and, and just to think about if, some principles here. You know, we are all called to partner together in the ministry of the gospel. I mean, that's why we are a part of this fellowship. We're not just here to maybe 
hear a sermon every now and then and uh, to maybe feel uplifted once a week. We're actually, our church is, is a fellowship in which we are considered partners in the ministry of the gospel, serving together on mission, the mission that Christ gave his church, which is what? To make disciples of all nations, right? We're to be a, a part of his work in making disciples. That's evangelism. That's also edifying the saints, seeking to help people grow in their sanctification and become more like Christ, those whom God saves. So how do we effectively partner together in gospel ministry as Paul's team did? Just a few, a few principles here that we can at least clearly see that the team had. First, we must find our unity in Christ. We must find our unity in Christ. Again, think about this team of Paul's, right? Half of them were Jews, half were Gentiles, but yet they were all, what, workers for the kingdom of God. But they were Jews and Gentiles. They were a mix. We must find our unity in Christ like they did. There can't be any dividing wall of hostility. There can't be any tribalism. There can't be any us-and-them mentality in the church. There is no place for group identity politics and gospel ministry. Right? We are, we are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of our ethnicity or our skin color or our zip code or our economic status. You name it. Whatever the world thinks that we should be divided on, our thinking in return must be we are united in Christ. Does your skin color matter? Does your ethnicity matter? Does your income matter? Now we turn on the news, we see... The world is tearing itself apart, putting people into groups and pitting them against each other. You're white, you're black, you're brown, you should hate each other. One of those classes of privilege is everybody's enemy because they're the man keeping you down, right? Don't get caught up in that. If you're in Christ, guess what? Your identity now is you are, hit, you are in him. You have been redeemed. You have eternal life. And those, no matter what they look like, what, what corner of the world they come from. If they are in Christ, you are now brothers and sisters. We are united in Christ. Number two, we must not only find our unity in Christ, we also must clothe ourselves in humility. Some of these are very obvious, right? Pride easily creeps up on us, and that's just our, our sinful flesh. But we always have to remember that you know, pretty much most sin starts with pride, self-centeredness. If we want to effectively be faithful to the Lord, serving in ministry together, being useful to our master, we need to clothe ourselves in humility. If we have been saved by grace alone and been reconciled to God on the basis of Christ's death in our place for our sins, then we have no cause for boasting. And Paul even says, God chose the, the weak things of the world, the despised things of the world. He didn't choose the noble and the, the strong and the, the wise among the world. No, he, he chose the least of us, and he, he, it pleased him to save us. There's no boasting except for boasting in what the Lord has done. There's no place for egos, then, in gospel ministry. We must remember that it is Christ who is head of the church, and that it's all about him. It's not about us. It's not about us. So the ego gets checked at the door for church ministry. We must be thinking of how can I be useful to him? How can I serve 
others. And number three, we must be content with what the Lord has granted to us. We must have contentment in what he's given to us. You know, one person's on, Paul, on Paul's team, one person on Paul's team was writing scripture while another person was delivering mail. All right? Despite what some may think, both tasks were important and needed to get done. So there's no place for envy in gospel ministry. We actually should be content with what the Lord's given us to do, how he's gifted us, the opportunities he's given us, the roles he's placed us in, in the local church. And understand that he's using all of us. As members of the body of Christ, we should, we should actually appreciate the diversity of giftedness among us and trust that we each have an important role to play in serving our Lord's purposes, no matter how small it may seem. I mean, again, we, we, we get an example of that every Sunday because so many people are serving in so many ways to, you know, in just very practical ways. For us to even have a, a weekly corporate worship service. So again, God is using every one of us, and that's just a little example of how he, he does that, that we are working together in diverse ways, serving a common purpose. So as we had talked about last time, the example of looking at this team and their faithfulness and service to the Lord and working together for the glory of Christ, for the advancement of the gospel, we're once again reminded of the fact that our Lord sovereignly grants to each and every one of us certain spiritual gifts, certain mental and physical capacities, and certain opportunities within certain sets of circumstances and within these parameters that he determines for us. It's not just an equal playing field. We don't all have the same circumstances. We don't all have the same gifts. But the Lord has granted us these things according to his own good pleasure. And within what he's given us, we are called to be what? Faithful. Faithful in the work of advancing the gospel and faithful in the work of building up the body of Christ. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and we thank you for reminding us that you've called each and every one of us, if you have saved us by your grace and given us new life, united us to Christ, we now belong to you. We, are now, we now belong to Christ, and we ultimately have been called to serve his purposes in the world. And we thank you for reminding us that each and every one of us has a role to play in your the advancement of your kingdom, your kingdom work, and the advancement of the gospel. We pray that you would give us a, a perspective, a heavenly perspective on the circumstances you placed us in, the opportunities you've given us, the giftedness you've bestowed upon us, our role in, in, in even our participation in this local body, Summit Bible Church. Help us to see how we can be used by you to serve your purposes, and to do that alongside our brothers and sisters here, that we might truly be united in spirit, have oneness of mind in serving you together. We pray now, especially as we, we take communion, that we would again be reminded of the fact that we have, by your grace, we have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, that 
our value, our, our inherent value is essentially seen in his sacrifice for us to ransom us, to lay down his life for us. And now we have our identity and purpose found in our life found in him. And Lord Jesus, we thank you again for laying down your life, for, for being our ransom, for, for offering the sacrifice that we cannot offer to pay for our sins in our place that we might be reconciled to God. Thank you for giving us life and hope in your name. We pray that we would seek to serve you as one body here in this local church, that we would be faithful and seek to be used in the way that you've called us and the opportunities you've given us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.